Praise the Lord. Ah. Big weekend for our family. Real big. My brother-in-law, John, got to wear his pink shorts. He looked great. (laughs) But no, I'm very humbled by the introduction. Dennis, you know... Dennis and I, our relationship kind of started off a little bit rocky um, when I met Erin, um, and she, I came to visit, came down here to visit for the first time. Uh, he thought, you know, I don't know, a lot of you guys know, Dennis is a big New York Giants fan, he's a big football fan, and she, he must have thought, here is, you know, he, he, my daughter meets this guy from New Jersey, he must be like a Giants fan, we can bond together over football, and he finds out that I'm a Cowboys fan. I know, I know, I know. But you see, only the Lord can do this to the point where now Dennis was inspired, clearly, to redecorate your sanctuary in Cowboys colors. So clearly, God is at work in his life. Uh, so as... as I had to. Um, so as Dennis shared, uh, I am from New Jersey, and uh, because I'm from New Jersey, our passage this morning really resonates with me because it's centered around a debate. And in New Jersey, the New York, New Jersey metropolitan area, we really love a good debate. There are many people who hate confrontation. They don't like conflict. They'll do anything to avoid it, but in New Jersey, we run to it. We just, we love it, and it, it, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's our sports talk radio, Yankees, Mets, Giants, Jets, Knicks, Nets, politics, business, who makes the best slice of pizza or cheesecake, we really do. We love to debate, and our passage this morning starts out with a debate between a lawyer and a rabbi. And I know it sounds like I'm about to tell you a bad joke, you know. A lawyer and rabbi walk into a bar. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, But the lawyer is an expert in the Mosaic Law, and he suspects that he has the upper hand on what he believes to be this simple rabbi, but unknowingly he has taken upon the master. And so the lawyer thinks he's going to have this easy time and trapping Jesus into saying something critical about the Mosaic law, but this lawyer has messed with the wrong rabbi. And so let's go ahead, uh, open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 25, make our way through our passage, Uh, but let's first look at verses 25 through 28. So that's Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 28. The text says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. So the text here 
refers to this man as a lawyer. But I want to be clear that he didn't practice law for the state, but rather he was an expert in the Mosaic law. And these men who taught, interpreted, and transmitted the Mosaic law were sometimes referred to as scribes. However, they would often interpret the Mosaic law according to a particular tradition which would often distort its true Meaning, Jesus often lumps them in with the Pharisees because they both used power, position, and the scriptures to manipulate people for their own personal gain. This is why often in the New Testament, when we see Jesus teaching, he will begin with the phrase, you have heard it said. And then we'll state the interpretation of the scriptures that has been distorted by the scribes and the Pharisees. Then Jesus will follow that with with the phrase, But I say to you, and then Jesus, as the author of the law and the entire scriptures, explains its true meaning. So it's not that Jesus has come to abolish the law, but he has come to fulfill it and show us its true meaning. And Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the law, that all of scripture points to Jesus as our Lord, our King, and our Messiah. Amen? So this had been going on throughout Jesus' ministry and was absolutely just driving the scribes and the Pharisees bonkers. And they loathed Jesus for thinking that he had the authority to interpret the scriptures. How dare he defy their traditions and undermine what they had constructed. He was a threat to the power and control that they wielded over the nation, and all threats to them must be dealt with and eliminated. And so the text tells us that this lawyer has set out to put Jesus to the test. He's going to try and trap him into saying something contradictory to the law or have him say something disparaging about it. The lawyer must have thought to himself that this this isn't going to be too hard. After all, I'm an expert in the law, and Jesus is just this simple commoner who lives on the fringes of society. It shouldn't be too difficult for me to trip up this carpenter from Galilee of all places. So the question he now asks Jesus is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow, the question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, you need to understand that in Israel, there were different camps with regard to their theology, especially their theology of the end times. Most commonly, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they had their different beliefs regarding the resurrection. However, there was one central belief that everyone held in common, which was that if everyone can get their act together and live in obedience... To the Mosaic law, the Messiah will come, he'll drive out all the Romans, and he'll restore the kingdom to Israel. The good times will be back yet again. In other words, if we really behave ourselves, it will make the Messiah come, and he'll get rid of all those Romans for us, and we'll be top dog once again. But what's the problem with that belief system? You see... They sought to follow God, not out of love, but rather out of obligation. Their motivation 
in following the Lord wasn't because they loved the Lord, but rather they were trying to manipulate him through their good deeds to get whatever it is that they want, the ultimate treasure of their heart, right? Which was that political power to drive out the Romans, right? And to, to again, to, to see Israel return to, the, to its place of prominence in the world. And again, this is not a relationship at all, right? This is based in manipulation, it's actually this distorted form of this consumerism where it's completely transactional, where, you know, God, if, if I do this for you, then you do this for me. Yeah. I call it Santa Claus theology. And, and this is kind of how we were all raised, right? And, and so this kind of seeps its way into our thinking and sometimes into our relationship with God, too, that if we are good little boys and girls... We'll get ourselves off the naughty list and onto the nice list. So Santa Claus will come, bring us everything that we want. Again, that is how often we sometimes can deceive ourselves into approaching God. Now, how is it what the scribes and Pharisees were doing in, in that manner? So they were basically, again, putting before the people that if you're super good at following the law, Messiah is going to come back and give us everything that we want. So they were approaching Messiah as if he was their cosmic Santa Claus. This is what theologians refer to as works righteousness. And if we're being honest, we can be guilty of doing the same thing. We start to think God only loves us based on our performance, that God punishes us or rewards us based on our obedience, And brothers and sisters, we need to remind ourselves and to go to the word of God, to go to the core of our faith, which is the gospel, and remind ourselves that we serve a great and magnificent God who gave his life for us while we were still sinners. And he invites us to come to him just as we are. We don't have to clean ourselves up and then present ourselves to God. We just need to come. And God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, he will do the work on our behalf. He will sanctify us. He will make us holy. He will transform us into something beyond our wildest dreams if we just submit ourselves to him. Because God is that perfect father. He loves us no matter what. He is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Praise him for his grace and his mercy. Amen? Praise God that our salvation is secure, not in our own works, but in the work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. See, when we make anything other than God our first love, that's called idolatry. And the religious leaders joy, their treasure, their salvation was not knowing and cherishing God, but rather it was getting rid of the Romans and restoring the kingdom to Israel. They longed for the days of David and Solomon when Israel was the most prominent nation amongst the nations. And so ultimately, what their heart longed for was to make Israel great again. See, a disciple of Jesus Christ does not follow God with a hidden agenda. 
A true disciple follows God because they have been amazed by his grace. They've been captivated by the the power of God in their life, the presence of the Holy Spirit working within them, and they're compelled to follow God because they love him. They know God, and they love God because true love has no strings attached. And so knowing this, Jesus responds to the lawyer in verse 26 by saying, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so why does Jesus respond this way? Because the scribes and Pharisees had become so obsessed with trying to follow the law in order to earn their salvation that they actually create an additional law to help them follow the law. They create an additional law to help them follow the law. It's referred to as the oral law, the Mishnah. And the reason that it created a buffer or a fence or a hedge around the Mosaic law, the actual law of God, protecting them from ever breaking it. So they feel like, okay, well, if we break this law, at least we're not breaking the real law. That's a lot of laws for me. I don't know about you. But over time, what ends up happening is that the Mosaic law ends up kind of getting mixed up and the lines get blurred and it all just kind of gets mishmashed almost into one and the religious leaders hold it in the same esteem as the actual God-given Mosaic law. And so we see how wicked and evil this is. This is on par with adding to the scriptures, basically. And so thereby, they distort God's word by doing this. And so Jesus knows all of this, and his response in verse 26 is so brilliant by tactfully asking the lawyer, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? How do you read it? What's, what's actually written there? And so the lawyer responds with a textbook answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And and that's actually the correct answer. He restates part of Deuteronomy 6.5, Leviticus 19.18, the greatest commandment, which is the summary of the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And any Jew knew this, let alone an expert in the law. This is Torah 101. The lawyer must be like, well, what are you, what are you saying to me here? This is, this is the basics. What are you getting at here, Jesus? And so Jesus responds to the lawyer in verse 28 by saying, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, this is, there's something really subtle here, and, and we have to kind of dig this out of the Greek a little bit, but what, when Jesus says this, he says this in the present imperative. And and here's what that means, and here's why this is important. Jesus is effectively saying, loving God and your neighbor isn't a one-time thing. What Jesus is basically saying here is he's saying continually or keep on doing this perfectly forever and you will live. Um, Now, what's the problem with that? Now, I don't know about you, I don't, I don't know if this is a universal thing or maybe it's just a New Jersey thing, but my natural inclination, apart from the Holy Spirit, is to dislike people. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know if this is something we can bond over or not. Um, but I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but my 35 years on this earth my experience has been in spending lots of time with people is that sometimes, sometimes, not all the time, they have a tendency to be annoying. <laughs> and they can be difficult to love. 
And so I can't love God and my neighbor perfectly for one day, let alone my entire life. And, and so where does this bring us? Well, the Apostle Paul, he kind of addresses this and the whole entire purpose of the law in Romans 3, 22-24, where he says, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And so when we are confronted with the command to love God and our neighbor perfectly forever, we should drop to our knees overcome by our sin. We should just, just be just so cut to the heart and, and just drop to our knees in humility by reason like, God, I, there's no way I can do this. I'm in trouble. But you see, this is why God created the law to compare ourselves to his holy, set-apart, perfect standard to reveal to us how we fall short. And we cannot do this on our own apart from the power of God, that we are desperate for God's grace and his unconditional love in our lives that's only found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you see, instead of crying out to God, the lawyer... He does the opposite. He tries to justify himself. Verse 29 says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And who is my neighbor? In other words, what the lawyer wants to know is, How good is good enough? It's one thing to know the greatest commandment intellectually, to love God and our neighbor and to be able to memorize a few verses. It's an entirely different matter to actually live this out and to put this into, pra into practice. And so Jesus exposes the lawyer's heart. The essence of knowing God is love. Loving him and loving others. You see, you can't love God if you don't love your neighbor. Right, the scriptures makes that clear, that if you don't love your neighbor, the love of God isn't in us. So, you see, the vertical, our relationship with God, goes hand in hand with the horizontal, our love with others. It's impossible to do one without the other. And so that's what Jesus is starting to, to get at here. And so what the lawyer really wants to know here is, what is the bare minimum that I have to do to get into heaven? And sadly, this, this type of thinking has wormed its way into the North American church, especially evangelicalism, where people want to know, well, what's the bare minimum? What do I got to do to make sure I have fire insurance? That if something happens to me, I, I know that I'm going to go to heaven instead of hell. What do I have to do? What, do, what donation do I have to make? What prayer do I have to pray? And that is simply just not in the scriptures. And so when we ask that, we're asking the wrong question. And the lawyer here, he's asking the wrong question because you can't get to heaven by doing anything of your own accord. Right? We must repent of our sin. We must turn away from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ in faith. We must submit ourselves to him and call on him as our Lord and Savior and surrender our entire lives to him. See, it's only by the grace and love of God through the sacrifice and triumph of Jesus Christ that we can be saved. 
Because God is not interested in the bare minimum. He wants all of us. He wants it all. All of our sin, all of our warts, all of our mistakes, everything. He wants all of us because that's what love is. That's what love is. God wants our hearts. And he will transform all of us if we let him. But instead of humbling himself, the Lord decides to double down in trying to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And so what is the lawyer's motivation behind asking such a question? Simply put, he's, he's just doing what lawyers do. No offense to any lawyers out there. I have friends that are lawyers, not, not trying to take a shot at lawyers. But, but what he's trying to do is, he, he's being a good lawyer. He's looking for a loophole. Because that's what good lawyers do. He's trying to manipulate the law in such a way so he can exonerate himself from any guilt. He's trying to justify himself. And in Jewish oral tradition, the halakha states that the neighbor of the Jew is the Jew. That non-Israelites are not considered neighbors. It teaches that only Israelites who are faithful to the law are your neighbor. And this even included anyone with a disability because it was thought that if you had a disability that that was because it was somehow your fault, some result of sin in your life. So to these religious leaders, they did not consider any of what Jesus refers to as the least of these as their neighbor. And so Jesus knows this. He sees how incredibly sinful this is and contradictory to, to what God wants for his people. And so he responds to the lawyer's arrogance and lack of compassion via a parable in verses 30 through 35 which I want to read together, and many of you may be familiar with this. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan, one of my favorite passages, such a powerful passage of Scripture. So let's read verses 30 through 35 together. It says, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So let me give you guys a little bit of background on this parable. So the distance between Jerusalem and Jericho is only 17 miles. However, Jerusalem is 3,000 feet above sea level, while Jericho is 1,000 feet below the Mediterranean Sea. So the road to Jericho was very steep. And its mountainous terrain made it an ideal place for thieves to hide in crags and caves along the road to strike and then easily escape. And the road was so dangerous it was often referred to as the bloody way. And so when I get frustrated with making the trip on 95 and having to deal with all the traffic and the beltway and stuff, at least it's not the bloody way. I'll take the beltway over the bloody way 10 times out of 10. Um, But... In Jesus' story, a Jewish man had been robbed, severely beaten, and left to die. Of all the people who would come across this poor man's path, here comes a priest. 
Wow, this is his lucky day. It's a priest, surely. A man of the cloth will come to his aid and help his fellow Israelite. Right? Well, the scriptures are peppered with verses of how Jews are to not only help their fellow man in need, but to even help their enemy when they're in distress. Jesus knows this. And so we think that, yes, yes, like this is going to happen. But no, it doesn't. Right? The, the priest, he kind of goes on his own way. And so what Jesus is doing here, he knows all of this, and he exposes the lawyer's lack of compassion and his distortion of the scriptures. And so we read that this man of the cloth, the priest, he's either too busy or doesn't want to get involved. So he passes by to the other side of the road. Next up is the priest helper, the Levite. He comes along, same thing. He's no better. Now, before we get all high and mighty, Start judging the priest and the Levite. We need to put ourselves in their shoes. So imagine. Let's do something kind of that we would kind of understand a little bit. Here's a little scenario here. Imagine you went to a Yankee game. Okay, I was going to say Orioles are Nationals, but I wanted to use a relevant team that's in it, you know. Ooh. Ooh. That woke you up. So imagine you went to a Yankee game, and the game goes late into extra innings. The Yankees win, of course. And so afterwards, you're hungry. You go, you get something to eat, and you go to catch the subway home, and you find out the subway station's closed. Oh, I got to walk to the next subway station. You're in the Bronx. It's the wee hours of the morning, and you have to walk to the next subway station all by your lonesome, not the best neighborhood in the entire world, to say the least. And so you look over. As you're walking and there's this alley and there are some shady characters and you notice a man on the ground and he's been assaulted. What do you do? Do you get involved? Or do you keep on walking because you don't want to get mixed up in any trouble? Or maybe you're a pragmatist like me. And you say, well, I'm going to take out my cell phone. I'm going to let the professionals handle this. Right? I'm going to call 911. Well, guess what? The Levites were the officers of God's people charged with helping the needy. And so they were the public health officials charged with helping the poor, the destitute. So in this scenario, in your background, you have training as a first responder. So essentially, you kind of are 911. So you see where I'm getting at here? Here's my point. To grasp the total just message, the point of this parable is that if a priest and his helper won't stop to help him, who will? Who will? The point Jesus is trying to get at here is that this guy, he's as good as dead. But then in the story, all of a sudden, of all the people who could walk by, here comes upon the man a Samaritan. A Samaritan. Now, we need to know, the Jews despised, despised the Samaritans. 722 BC, the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom of Israel. And over the time, people intermarry with their captors. The Samaritans are considered traitors. They're called half-breeds by the Jews. And to the Jews, the term good Samaritan, it was an oxymoron. There is not one good Samaritan. And so as a Jew, if you wanted to severely insult someone, you would call them a Samaritan. So they truly, truly despise them. 
So not only does Jesus pick someone who the lawyer would consider a non-neighbor, but he chooses who they would consider the worst of the worst. It's the last person you'd want to have to depend upon as a Jew. So in the parable, the Samaritan, facing the same danger as the priest and the Levite, springs into action to help his enemy. He gives him first aid, he cleans his wounds, he gives him transportation, provides for him shelter, and cares for this man in need. And as if that wasn't enough, he's willing to incur the man's debt to provide for him. Right? He goes to the innkeeper and says, here's some money, let him stay here. If he needs to stay here longer, if there's anything else he needs, you put it on my tab. I come around, I'm going to pay for it. I got this. Okay. So what's the point? Love never does the bare minimum. Loving others comes at great personal cost. It takes sacrifice. It requires us getting our hands dirty. It requires us being uncomfortable. It requires all of us. This is what the gospel looks like in action. The Samaritan who risked his safety, destroyed his schedule, became dirty and bloody through personal involvement, with a needy person of another race and social class, that's what love looks like. That's what the gospel looks like. So there's no doubt that the Samaritan's love was authentic, both God and his neighbor. So the passage closes in verses 36 and 37, where Jesus asked the lawyers, which of these Three, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Bam, roasted. You notice the lawyer, he can't even get it out of his mouth. He can't even say Samaritan. He's like, the one who showed him mercy. Ooh, that hurts. Jesus is good. He's very good. Remember the lawyer's initial question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Through this parable, Jesus is showing him that this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. And to get there, there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. We are desperate for the grace of God. Responding with love is an outgrowth of what God provides when people humble themselves and turn to him in love. That God will provide this love for others when we receive him and the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives, sanctifying us, transforming us, making us holy the way God is holy. This is what the gospel does in our lives, right? The gospel is not just for salvation. It's not how we just come to know Christ. It's how we grow in Christ as well, that we never can depart from the gospel. It's at the core of our faith. So if we have been compelled by the love of God and his spirit is living inside of us, we will show compassion to our enemies. So the question is not, who is my neighbor? But rather, what kind of neighbor am I? A follower of Jesus desires to be a good neighbor to those who God puts in our path, whoever it may be. And so what does that mean for the people of God and Waldorf and the surrounding area. Well, who has God put in your path? What group of people has God called Grace Church to? To be heralds of his good news. 
and coming kingdom? Who has God called us to love this morning? Who are the outsiders, like the Samaritans, that God is calling you to love? What would Waldorf and the surrounding area look like if we loved our neighbor the way the Good Samaritan did? So if we call ourselves Christians, we must know that a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of Jesus Christ, loves like Jesus loves. People will see the presence of the Holy Spirit, will see the presence of God in our lives if we truly are disciples of Jesus Christ. And it means loving people at great personal cost and sacrifice. It means loving people when it's really, really hard, even when they don't love you back. It means loving people with no strings attached. It means loving people like they're people, not like they're projects. And so what does this parable mean for us personally, for us as the people of God? Well, In the past, I don't know about you, but whenever I've read this parable, I always identify myself with the characters in the parable. And every time I read it, I identify myself with a different character. And so I've I've read it before, and I've said, you know, God used this passage to reveal my arrogance. I identify myself with the lawyer. I'll read it again, you know, and I'm God, wow, you've used this to convict me on how I've fallen short by ministering to those that you've put in my path, like the priest and the Levite. And he's used this passage in my life to encourage me with the example of the good Samaritan. And while those are some really great things that we can glean there, if, if that's all we come away with, we've really missed the point of the passage Because we have a tendency to miss the character in whom we all identify with the most. And I don't know about you, but I know who I am in the parable. I'm the man lying helpless in the road. And you are too. Lying there, dead in our sin, completely powerless to do anything to save ourselves. And then, when it seems like we're done for, that there's no hope, we're as good as dead, here comes our hero. The one who the religious leaders rejected. They hated him even more than a Samaritan by handing him over to the Romans to be crucified as an enemy of Israel instead of embracing him as their Messiah. Yet in the process, he loved his enemies and cried out, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do as he hung on the cross for their sin. Even though it was our very sin that put him there. When he came upon you and I. Even though it was our sin that nailed him to the cross. He looked upon us with compassion. When we were hurting. He restored us. And in our pain. He comforts us. He did not seat us on an animal as the good Samaritan did, but rather, as Ephesians 2, 6 says, he raised us up with him and seated seated us with him in the heavenly places. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan because he not only loved his enemies, but did what the good Samaritan could not do, take upon himself their sins. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If God loved us as his enemies, 
to the point that he gave his life for us as his followers, how can we not love our neighbors? A true disciple knows that they are a sinner saved by grace and are desperate for God's continual grace and power in their life and they extend it to others. And so this morning, let me ask you, have you surrendered your life completely to Jesus Christ? Or is there something that you've just been holding on to and every time God pricks your heart about it, just like the lawyer, you try and justify yourself. Well, that's because, well, God, uh, you justify yourself over and over and over again. Well, I want to challenge you this morning to surrender to the Holy Spirit's moving in your life. That if that's you this morning, to just bring whatever that is before the cross, to surrender it to Jesus Christ this morning, to put your trust in him and experience the true peace and power that only the King of kings and Lord of lords can provide. It's my prayer that we, as the people of God, would find our identity, our joy, and our peace in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is to be known by you. We thank you for the gift of your son Jesus and for loving us even when we were unlovable. To reaching out to us in our greatest time of need when we were completely lost in our sin. Father God, I pray for your power, for your grace, for your mercy that you would humble hearts this morning for those of us that truly need to surrender, whatever it is, Lord, whatever it is that your Holy Spirit is calling us to surrender this morning, that we would do so, that we would know that you are good, we would know that you're a perfect Father, we would know that you're faithful even that we're more unfaithful, and that there is salvation for us. Whatever, we, we're, whatever it is that we're struggling with, Lord, you have overcome it at the cross. You have overcome it by the power of your resurrection. And Father, we can overcome these things in the power of what you have done, what you have completed for us, the assurance that we have in your Son. Father, thank you so much for your perfect love and for calling us to this just precious and great calling to know you and live for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.